It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're going to be continuing in the book of 1 Peter today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 today. But before we jump in, let's ask the question, what is the book of 1 Peter all about? What is this book that we've been going through all about? Remember, Peter is writing to a group of suffering Christians. He's writing to a group of suffering Christians who are going through various trials, suffering, and pain that would come to really anyone and everyone living in this world. But on top of that, going through suffering and pain and trial that come to us because we are Christians, because we believe different, because we live different, because we try to pattern our lives according to God's word, not pattern our lives according to the word of the culture of the day. And so we're different, and Peter knows that, and so he calls us sojourners and exiles. He calls us sojourners and exiles because he's saying to us, if you follow Jesus in this world, if you pattern your life according to God's word in this world, no matter if it's the year 2017 of today or the first century, he's saying if you follow Jesus in this world, if you follow God's word in this world, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to feel like a sojourner and an exile. At best, you're going to be marginalized. At worst, you're going to be hated, even killed. Suffering and pain is inevitable for the Christian. It will come our way. And so the thesis of this book is this. The book of 1 Peter is all about this subject. How can we then face all the various trials and suffering and pain of life in such a way that all those things act to serve you instead of destroy you? In such a way that those things, the suffering and the pain, they, they act to refine you and to strengthen you and to make you more hopeful, make you more joyful, make you more loving, rather than those things breaking you and crushing you and bitter and hardened. That's the main point of this book. I read um, Tim Keller giving this illustration once. He was saying that, there, that, that there's a saying that the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. That the same sun that hardens clay melts wax. Well, what is it about clay that when the sun hits it, it hardens it? And what is it about wax that when the sun hits it, it melts it? See, here are two different kinds of people. They go through the same suffering and pain. They experience the same sun, as it were. The same thing, but it produces two different kinds of results. One person becomes harder while the other person becomes softer. This person over here, they become kinder, softer, more gentle, more compassionate, more loving, while the other person becomes bitter and closed off and hardened, depressed. Why is that? And the person who is becoming harder and bitter, if you were to ask them, why are you the way that you are, they'll say, it was because of the suffering. Right? It's because of the pain, it's because of the abuse, it's because of what happened to me. But then the question is, how do you account for the other person who went through the very same thing, but came out on the other side softer, not harder? Why does clay get harder and wax become softer? 
The difference isn't in the son. The son is the same. The suffering that happened is the same. The difference is in the internal makeup of each substance, right? The difference is in the internal makeup of each substance. Peter is saying that suffering and pain and various trials will come upon everybody. But he's saying, Christians, you're made up of a substance that is entirely different than the rest of the world. You are. And because of that, you can rejoice even in your sufferings because for you, God works all things, including suffering for your good, to make you flourish, to make you become softer, not harder, not bitter. So what makes us different? What is the internal makeup about you that's different? What are the realities about you that are true, that ought to make you unshakable and indestructible in this world, even through suffering and pain? The difference is your new nature. You're in the new internal makeup that God has given you. That's what Matt has been sharing with us for the last two weeks, that we are no longer slaves to the old nature of sin, but now we are children of this new nature of holiness, that we are no longer children of disobedience, but now we are the children of obedience, of holiness. That's what makes us different. And so when suffering hits us, its design is to not destroy you. When suffering hits us, its design is to refine you, to purify you, to make you more, look more like Jesus. But what did it cost God to give us this new nature? We didn't pay for this new nature, right? We received it freely, but it wasn't free to God. He paid something so that we can have this new nature, but what did it cost him? We need to know what it cost God to give us this new nature so that we don't treat it lightly. So when the old nature and the new nature battles inside of us, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? When the old nature and the new nature battles inside of us, we would consider the costliness of that new nature and give in to our new nature so that we would choose obedience, so that we would choose holiness. So what did it cost? Our new nature cost God the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, verse 19 told us. We looked at it some last week. It took nothing less than the blood of Jesus to make you who you are today, a child of God, ransomed from sin, given a new nature of holiness which makes you unshakable in this world even through suffering. Jesus, the slain lamb of God, without blemish or spot, was the payment. And we talked about this some last week, but I want us to continue to look at the preciousness of this payment of the cross that we're going to see in the next verse. First Peter chapter one, let's start with verse 18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the verse we're gonna be in today. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And so I want us to see three things about the payment as revealed in verse 20. Number one, that it was a planned payment. It was a payment that was planned. And number two, it was a payment that was accomplished. And number three, we're gonna look at the beneficiaries of that payment. So number one, to see that the payment that was paid was a planned payment. And number two, that wasn't just planned, it was actually accomplished. 
And lastly, we're going to look at who are the beneficiaries of that payment. Let's look at the first one. The payment of Jesus as the slain lamb of God was a payment that was planned. And the fact that it was planned has incredible ramifications for us. Look look at verse 20 again. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Peter says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, who is he? Who was foreknown? The verse before tells us Jesus, who was sacrificed like a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown. In other words, the slain lamb of God, the slain Jesus was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. The term the found, before the foundation of the world simply means before creation. Before God laid the foundation of the world, he was foreknown. What does foreknown mean? Foreknown just doesn't mean to know general truths and facts about, but to know intimately. And so when you kind of put all this together, he's saying that God foreknew. He knew all the intimate nature and details of the cross of Jesus. He planned it in his mind before the foundation of the world. Before creation, he planned the cross. The slain lamb of God was something that God planned from eternity's past before he created anything. There's another place where this truth is shown in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book talking about the end times. Let's read in chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast. There's lots of debate on who or what this beast is that's going to wage war on God's people in the end times. That would be a sermon in itself. So without getting into all that, let's look at this next section. So everyone's going to worship this beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, there's that term again, right? Before creation, in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And so, what Revelation 13, 8 is telling us is that there was a book written before the foundation of the world. There was a book written before, even before creation, and this book had a name. And the name of the book was the book of life of the lamb that was slain. And this is what Pastor John Piper says about this text. He says that this means that in the mind of the author of this book, in the mind of God, the Lamb of God was already slain. The slaying of the Lamb of God was the plan of God before the universe existed, before man existed, before history existed, before sin existed. The plan to save sinners by the blood of the Lamb was in place before there were any sinners to save. And so the slain lamb of God, Christ crucified, was the plan even before there was sin, even before there was a sinner. Jesus going to the cross for us has always been the plan. What this is saying is that the cross of Jesus is plan A. The cross of Jesus is plan A. It's not plan B. It's not some backup plan. It's not as though God created this perfect and beautiful world, but then we messed it up with sin, and so God had to think up something. The cross of Jesus is not plan B. He had always planned to do so. The slain Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, what are the implications of that truth? Here's one implication. If God planned the payment that you and I would need for our sin before he even created us, 
what must he have known? What must he have known? If he knew, if he planned the payment that you and I would need as sinners before he created us, what must he have known? Well, he must have known that we would sin, right? He must have known that the men and women that he would create would sin and rebel against him. And so the question is, if he knew we would sin against him, why create us at all? If he knew, why did he create us if he knew we would sin and it would cost him so much to bring us back? Surely he didn't have to create us. What this means is that God voluntarily, in his sovereign free will, that's the key word, voluntarily bound his heart and his life up with us. He didn't have to, he didn't need us, he's God, right? He didn't have to create us, but even before he created us, he already knit his heart up with ours. He voluntarily bound his heart to us so that his own joys would be affected by our joys, so that his own pain would be affected by our pain. Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, who was a professor of philosophy and theology at Yale University, wrote in a book called Lament for a Sin, he said that the tears of God are the meaning of history. He said that the tears of God are the meaning of history. What did he mean by that? You know, in Genesis 3, we see sin entering into the world through Adam and Eve, right? That's, that's in Genesis 3. Sin entering into the world through Adam and Eve, man in essence looking at God and saying, we don't want you, we don't trust you, we don't believe anything you have to say, we're going to do this our way, and they turn away from God. That's in Genesis 3. And the question is, so then why is there a Genesis 4? Genesis 1, God creates. Genesis 2, God creates. Genesis 3, men and women, Adam and Eve, created in God's image, turn away, reject this God. Genesis 3, why is there a Genesis 4? Why doesn't it end just right then and there? Why doesn't God just be done with us? In Genesis chapter 6, 5, as sin spreads through Adam and Eve to every single one of their children and on and on, God looks at the world and here's the condition of the world. He says that God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was the indictment, that was the assessment of the world as God looked at it in Genesis chapter six, verse five, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis six, five. And the question is, why is there a Genesis 6, 6? Why does history go on? And it's not just back then, you and I sin every day, right? You and I sin and reject this God every day. And the question is, why are we still here? Why does God endure us? Why does God put up with us? Because instead of striking us down in his righteousness, which he had the right to do, he decided to weep in his grace. Because God decided and planned before the foundation of the world that he would grieve and suffer. That's what Nicholas Wolterstorff meant when he said that the tears of God are the meaning of history. Why is there a history for us? Why does life go on for us? Why are we not destroyed in our sin? Because God decided to weep. God could have stopped it all, but he didn't. Why didn't he? He could have just not created us at all, but he did. Why did he? 
If you're a parent, you know instinctively why he did, right? If you're a parent, you know why he did. This is where we get our parenthood, parentness from, from God. We didn't create it. Parents, before you had your children, did you have any delusion that your child was going to be born and never wrong you, never cause you pain, always obey you, you know? Did you have any expectation that anytime you told your child what to do, they were going to look at you and say, oh, most gracious mother and father, <laughs> because of thy unending forbearance towards me, I will obey with great gladness. <laughs> My kids are in the front row. Have you guys ever said that to me? Not one time. Ten years of being a dad, not one time have they said that to me. Well, hopefully you didn't have that expectation. When you have a child, you have this little person in your life that has the potential to hurt you in ways you didn't know you could hurt. When you have a child, you have this little person in your life that could bring pain into parts of your heart that you didn't know existed. There's nothing quite like the pain a child could bring you, right? And college students and singles, those of you without children, this is why, even though you're out of their house, this is why you could drive your parents crazy sometimes. You do something and they go crazy and you're like, why are you being that way? It's because you have access to parts of their heart that no one has access to. Years ago, um, when Malachi, my oldest, was Three years, three years old, we had to take him to the emergency room. We were out having lunch with friends, and it was a beautiful day, so we just decided to stay afterwards and, and sit and talk. There were these metal benches outside the restaurant, and one of the benches had these like crazy edges to it and, and had a footstep that was made up of horseshoes, metal horseshoes that was kind of sticking up. And of course, it was painted bright, shiny red, so Malachi loved it. He was kind of climbing all over it, kept tripping over it, and kept telling him not to play on it, but he disobeyed. And, and as he was climbing one time, he kind of slipped backwards, and the back of his head just cracked right down on one of the metal horseshoe footsteps. And it was the scariest sound we had ever heard. And Angela and I ran up to him, and, and he's screaming, he's crying, there's blood gushing everywhere, and... And in that moment, I, I was grieved. In that moment, the pain in my heart that I experienced for Malachi, it just nearly folded me up, you know? It, for a moment, I just stood there. I didn't know what to do. We rushed him to the emergency room, and, and as he's being treated, as I'm waiting in the emergency room, I had this daunting thought that this was going to be the first of many trips to the emergency room. You know, he's nine now, and we've been there several more times. <laughs> and so I had this daunting thought that I'm going through some of the most unimaginable pain that I've ever gone through, but at the same time, I have another thought, that I would have him all over again, right? That I can't imagine life without him. Why? Why knowing that this little person is going to bring me pain to the level that I've never experienced before, not just once, but over and over and over again, would I choose to have him all over again? Because I bound my heart up with his, because he's my child, because he's my son. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, I knew you and loved you and bound my heart up with yours even before you took your first breath. 
And parents, we live in a fallen world and maybe it doesn't work like this all the time, but nevertheless, this is the way that God designed it. This is what you're doing when you decide to have children, right? Even before they exist, you're saying, I'm going to bound my heart up with yours. I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to raise you. I'm going to care for you. Even before they are born, even before they exist. And this is what God is saying. He's saying, I knew you would sin. He's saying, I knew I would be grieved and experienced and sh- experience shattering pain and anguish, but I would create you all over again. That's what God's saying. He's saying, I'm willing to suffer so that you may live. That's what God is saying. He's saying more than that actually in this text. He's saying, I plan to suffer so that you may live. And this is what good parents do. You count the cost, right? And you're saying, I'm willing to suffer so that you may live. This is why abortion is so heartbreaking to God, right? Because when we abort, we're doing the very opposite of what God did for us. We're counting the cost and we're saying, nope, not worth it. I'm unwilling to pay the cost. God was willing to pay the cost. He was, pay, he was willing to pay an infinite cost. And we really can go on and on about talking about the great ramifications of the fact that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. But briefly, what this means is that because the suffering Jesus has always been the plan, suffering can never destroy you. That which God used to save you can never destroy you. Suffering can only serve you now. Suffering is your servant now. It can only act to refine you, restore you, make you stronger, make you softer. You know, suffering is always hard because it makes you loosen your grip on the things of this world. That's why suffering is hard. Because there are things that we're latching onto and suffering makes you loosen your grip on the things of this world. But for the Christian, suffering is always good because it makes you tighten your grip onto Jesus. The only one who will never let you down. The only one that could save you. The only one who could give meaning to your suffering and turn it into glory. Let's look at the next section of the verse. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was made manifest. What this is telling us is that the payment for our salvation wasn't just planned, but it was accomplished at a point in history. In other words, it wasn't just wishful thinking on a part of God. You know, as human beings, we we make plans all the time, right? We make plans all the time, but making the plan ultimately doesn't mean anything unless you enact the plan, unless you accomplish the plan. And that's what this next section of the verse is telling us, that the slain lamb of God, that the cross of Jesus wasn't just planned, but at a point in history, in the last times, Peter tells us, that the lamb of God was made manifest. When was he made manifest? The Jesus Storybook Bible, Amazing Children's Bible, said it like this. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last, right? The thing that he planned before the foundation of the world. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people just as he promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? 
Mountains would have bowed down, seas would have roared, trees would have clapped their hands. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. So how was he made manifest? No, if you didn't know the way that he was made manifest, and you were told God was coming down and he was going to manifest himself. How would you imagine he would manifest himself? You would have thought the mountains would have bowed down, right? The seas would have roared, the trees would have clapped their hands, but how did he manifest himself? As a baby, he made himself small. At a point in history, he made himself into a single cell. He wrapped himself in human flesh and he made himself vulnerable. He made himself vulnerable to getting hungry and tired and sleepy. He's God. He has never known what it is to be hungry. He has never known what it is to be tired or sleepy, but he made himself vulnerable to those things. Why? Because we get tired. We get sleepy. We get hungry. He was making himself the perfect high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He made himself vulnerable to the enemy's attack, to being tempted to sin. He made himself vulnerable to being forsaken by his friends, by his heavenly father. Ultimately, why? So that he could be slain. Otherwise, how do you kill God? He humbled himself, made him small, so that ultimately, as the lamb of God, he could be slain. And as the time for the cross came near, as the time for which he was born into this world came near, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, there he is, the promised one. There he is, the Lamb of God that was planned, that was promised. So Jesus was born. He was declared, there he is. He's the Lamb of God. He's being manifest. The plan of God before the foundation of the world is happening. But where do we see Jesus most being manifest? Yes, in his birth, he's being manifest. Yes, as he's being declared the the Lamb of God, he's being manifest. Where do we see Jesus most being manifest as fulfilling the eternal plan of God? John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said... To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. To fulfill the scripture, verse 28 says, to fulfill what he and his father planned before the foundation of the world. He said, I thirst. Now think about that. This was the price that the slain lamb of God was willing to pay and was paying. Not just the infinite agony of being forsaken by his heavenly father, but down to the most elementary agony of thirsting. He said he was thirsty so that he could wet his lips one last time so that he could say what? So that he could say, it is finished. He wanted to say it because he wants us to know it. He wants us to know that it is finished. Well, what's finished? What's finished? The plan for him to be slain is finished. The plan that he and his father 
made before the foundation of the world. He sang it as finished. He and his father had always known what, what it would cost them to create you and me and to bring us back after we sinned. And Jesus is saying, Father, we did it. We finally did it. It is finished. What a precious payment. What a costly payment. And perhaps you've thought up to this point the ways in which Jesus was made manifest. Perhaps you've thought about him being born, right? Perhaps you've thought about, thought about him being declared the Lamb of God. Perhaps you've thought about the cross, him manifesting himself as the payment. But I want us to think about one more thing. That according to scripture, Jesus not only became human to fulfill the plan of the cross, but he stayed human after he fulfilled the plan of the cross. He not only became human in order to fulfill the plan, but he stayed human after he fulfilled the plan. He stayed in the human body and that he will be in the flesh forever. He's in the human flesh right now in his glorified body, the body that you and I will have at the resurrection. He's just one step ahead of us in his humanness. Did you know that he has bound himself with us in that way forever? After Jesus rose from the dead, you see Jesus appearing to his disciple, not as some kind of spirit, right, but in the human flesh. He lets Thomas touch the nail prints in his hands. You see him eating with the disciples. You see the angels promising that this Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come back in the same way. Still later, we see Stephen gazing into heaven as he's being martyred and says that he saw Jesus as the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus is the God-man, not just for 33 years, but forever. You see, this plan was not just a plan that was made in eternity past, but it will forever have ramifications into eternity future. Why does all this matter? Jesus being in the flesh is like a wedding ring, as it were. Jesus being in the flesh, staying in the flesh, being a human forever is like a wedding ring, a forever symbol of our union. We the church as his bride and he as our bridegroom. You see, as long as I live, I'm gonna wear this ring. As long as I live, I'm not gonna take it off. And it serves as a symbol to myself, to my wife Angela, to the world that I'm bound to her. That I'm gonna, I'm gonna be faithful to her, I'm gonna serve her, I'm going to love her. That I have bound my heart up with hers as long as there's breath in both of our lungs. Jesus is God, he's always been God, he's al he always will be God, but at a point in history, in order to fulfill the plan of the slain lamb of God, he became human, and he will stay human forever, and in that way he sang to us, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? As he stays in the human flesh forever, he's saying to us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, look at me, right? He's saying, I'm gonna be forever faithful to you. I'm gonna forever love you, I'm gonna forever serve you. I'm never going to take off this wedding ring. And lastly, in conclusion, who are the beneficiaries of this payment? that was planned before the foundation of the world and what is accomplished 2,000 years ago? For whom did Jesus go to the cross? For whom did Jesus make this payment? First Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times 
for the sake of you. For the sake of you. For who? For you. Peter is revealing an astonishing truth that we often overlook and don't ponder enough. That the astonishing truth is that God's eternal plan for Jesus is for the sake of you. God's eternal purpose for Jesus is for the sake of you. And so ponder this for a moment now, and I pray that you just won't be able to shake it this whole week, right? As God always does, he sovereignly laid out just kind of the way the text has been going and First Peter, and this is the week that leads up to Good Friday, right? The day that we're supposed to remember the cross of Jesus. And what better way than to remember the cross of Jesus than the way that it's being displayed in First Peter for us this week? The early church who suffered most for being Christians, they were captured by this truth. If you read about the early church, the reason why they suffered most But at the same time, the reason why they persevered and even flourished through all the suffering was because they were captured by this truth that Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Not just God loved the world, okay? Their logic wasn't, how do I know God loves me? Well, because God loves the world and I am in the world, so I guess God loves me. That wasn't their conclusion. That wasn't what made them persevere and flourish through all the difficulties of life. They they knew it. They interpreted it. They received it personally that Jesus loves me and gave himself up for me. This is what Peter wants you to know about the slain lamb of God, that Jesus, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you for the sake of you. And think about it in this way. The suffering and the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, who is it for? It's for you. Right? It's for you. C.S. Lewis once said that when he died in the wounded world, he died not for men, but for each man. But for each man, you know, I think a lot of times we, we, we know this truth that Jesus died for his people, right? That Jesus died for the church, right? Even he died for the sins of my friends, my parents, our children even, right? But when's the last time you were captured by this fact that Jesus died for me? He died for me. Think about your sins. The sins that you think are your greatest sins. Think about your sins. Not just sins in general, I'm talking about your sins. Think about your sins that you commit every day, the sins that you think are your small and little sins. Think about your hard-heartedness towards God sometimes. You sin and God's convicting you of the sin. He wants you to repent, he wants you to turn, but there's just a hard-heartedness. You refuse. God, I can't give this up. No, I can't confess this. Think about the spiritual numbness you have towards God sometimes. You've been living in that sin for so long that you don't even feel the conviction anymore. Think about the spiritual numbness. Think about all the things that cut you off from God. And the question is, did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? 
Did he die for your sins? Not my sins, not the sins of the church. All those things are true. But the question is, did he die for your sins? And if you're a Christian here today, the answer is yes. He died for your sins. And if he died for your sins, I want you to receive this truth afresh today. That Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he gave himself up for you. And so the Christian says, come what may. Suffering, pain, and sorrow, I'm I'm loved by Jesus. Christians, you're indestructible in this world because you're loved by Jesus. How do I know, says the Christian? How do I know? Because he gave himself up for you. In a very real way, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, when they planned the cross, they had you in mind. He didn't have this just general blanket, my people in mind. He had you in mind, right? When Jesus is dying on the cross and he, and he finished paying for your sins and he said, Father, it is finished. I want you to know it's finished. He's not just telling the church in general, his, his people in general. He's not just saying, hey guys, all of you, it's finished. He had you in mind. He wants you to know that it is finished. So you don't ever have to wonder, Christians, when you sin, does God still love me? Well, first of all, he already knew. He knew. And he's saying he paid for it all. How can you know he loves you? He gave himself up for you. He always planned to do so. Let's pray together. And for those of you who've never experienced, who've never known this love of Jesus, you didn't know you sinned against this great God. You didn't know that you have life in your lungs today because he created you. You didn't know that sin cut you off from him. And you also didn't know that God at great length, God at great cost to himself, He died on the cross for your sins. How can you know he did it for you? The Bible says the cross is for all who believe. So if you've never believed, if you've never trusted into this Jesus for your salvation, for the paying of your sins, trust in him today. Trust in him today. for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation, and live according to God's word. Father, we thank you for this great plan of the cross. That you went into this thing called creation, you went into this thing called fatherhood with eyes wide open. Our sin didn't catch you by surprise. You suffered no delusion. You knew the depths of our depravity. You knew all the ways that we would wrong you. You knew the depths to which we would sin against you. You knew the depths of the payment that would be required for our being brought back to you, and yet you were willing to pay it all. You were willing to suffer so that we may live. 
you plan to suffer so that we may live. So now that we are alive, now that we have been reconciled to you, Lord, help us to live a life that's pleasing to you. As we think about the cross, let us boast in the cross. What can we say but to say thank you? We worship you. We commit our lives to you. Because you have first bound your heart up with ours, Lord, we bound our heart up with yours forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.